We're going to get into God's Word today. Now, we're going to take a break just for today from Luke. And so, but this is a day you want to take notes. Your phone, open the notes app or analog style, a, a notebook. Some of you guys are bringing notebooks. I'm going to give you a bunch of scriptures today. This is a, a study that I wrote a while ago, but I love these bigger pictures of God's Word and it helps me to put things in context. The title of my study is, It's All About Jesus. Now, that's the Sunday school answer. It doesn't matter what the question is in Sunday school. The answer is what? That's right. And that sounds terribly simplistic. But I'm going to give you the, the more academic answer, the bigger picture answer. When Peter denied the Lord the three times at the end of Jesus' ministry, went to the cross, remember, Jesus said to him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but I've prayed for you. And Peter, Peter in his arrogant ways, his pride said, Lord, I would never deny you. You know, these other losers, they're going to deny you, but Lord, not me. And so it all worked out just as Jesus had said. And you remember at the end of John's gospel, when Jesus went after the disciples, reveals himself, and Peter has that conversation to restore him uh, with the Lord. You remember the one question Jesus asked Peter? Do you love me? And in fact, he asked him that question three times. Now, if I was restoring Peter, I would, have, I would have a lot more to say to him. What an idiot. The Lord told you this was going to happen, and you didn't believe him. There's all kinds of things. You know, those are the kinds of things that I would say to myself whenever I blow it. But when Jesus is dealing with our lives, he brings us back to the most important point, and he said, Peter, do you love me? Now, he used not the word agape, or he did use the word agape. Peter, do you agape? Do you, do you love me with that divine, fervent, passionate love? And for one of the first times in Peter's time with the Lord, he told the truth. He said, Lord, you know I'm fond of you. He didn't say, yeah, I love you passionately. That's what he was saying before he fell. He finally said, Lord, yes, I phileo you. I'm fond of you. I have a friendly affection toward you. And Jesus asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me, love me agape? Peter again said, Lord, you know I'm fond of you. Jesus again asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? But the third time, what's fascinating is Jesus came down to Peter's level and said, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you love me with an affection as a friend? And Peter said, yes. The amazing lesson of that is, one of the amazing lessons of that is that Jesus meets me where I am. 
he meets Peter where he is in order that he might bring Peter up to where he wants him to be. Those things are in God's word, and we, we dive into the main lessons, but also the details to discover those kinds of things. The Son of God became man, came down to our level to bring us into a relationship with him that he might bring us up to where he wants us to be. And all of that working out of our lives, delivering us from old things to conforming our lives into his image, Romans 8, 29, is about one thing, and that is an intimate love relationship with Jesus Christ. The reason that's so important to me and my ministry at this time is because there are so many things in church life to get distracted with. There are so many things to get hyper-focused on and forget the main thing, which is that it's all about Jesus. In the the beginnings of the revival, the Jesus movement. It was called the Jesus movement because that's all those kids cared about was Jesus. It wasn't about church or getting to play rock and roll in church or any of this other stuff. Those 60s hippies, as they were called back then, they came into a real personal relationship with Jesus. And if you will talk to them, those old hippies, and there's a lot of them around Oregon. I think they're all in Eugene. <laughs> they will tell you, and I, as I go out to churches and talk to them, yeah, I was there in the Jesus movement. The one thing that resonates with them is that they knew the presence of Jesus in the revival, in the movement. So when us old guys talk about those days, it's not, I hope you understand, not to reminisce about old things, but to remember the main thing. I have no interest in trying to recapture the old days. But it is to stay faithful to the one thing that I learned and the only reason I'm in the ministry is because of how Jesus personally worked in my life. Now, I grew up in church, in a little Baptist church in the Los Angeles area. And there was no way when I got out of my parents' house that I was going to still go to church. But the Lord had other plans. And now after about 30 years of ministry and you guys know that I go um, train or support other churches and staff and pastors. And what's interesting is I'm my main job oftenly, often is not to teach them a bunch of new things about ministry, but mainly to remind them about the things they forgot. Tuesday night of this past week, we had school and ministry class. Uh, about 25 in the class, and I said, well, I got to 
early in the morning, Wednesday morning, I got to go down to Red Bluff and do a wheel alignment. That means I got to go visit a church and things are a little wobbly and we're just going to, you know, put things back in alignment. And I drove early Wednesday morning, drove there, got there late in the day, Wednesday and from Wednesday late day till the till Thursday, I had eight meetings with the staff, um, a whole staff meeting, and then met with each staff member. And it is true. I told them, I joked, I said, I'm here to do a wheel alignment. And they thought that was funny because that's exactly it. It's our routine of ministry. And we start to think we know something. That we can often forget the most important thing. And if we forget that, there's nothing that's going to happen here. We can have church and go home and say, that was great. But my plan, my desire, is that the Lord would be able and allowed in your life to do a work that he wants to do. We all talk about that. And there's no question that God wants to work But what I've learned is that I can get in the way. I personally can get in the way of God working in my own life. And we can get in the way as a church of the thing that God wants to do in this church. And I believe the whole church in Albany. We're all one church. Maybe different styles but the same vision that the Lord would be the center of every church and doing the work that he desires to do in that church and through that church to the community. Paul wrote to the Colossians chapter one, verses 27, 28. He says that it is Christ in you, the hope of glory whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect or complete in Christ Jesus. My job is to train you, equip you, mature you, and present you to Jesus. And then there's more work to do in heaven. So we plan and we prepare church and activities and the sound and all these things. But it all needs to serve one purpose, and that is us connecting with Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, abide in me, connect with me, or without me, you can do what? A few things? Nothing. Stay connected to Jesus, and that's where it is. So the the longer answer, why do we worship and make Jesus the center of our life? That's a real basic question. It's not a New Testament principle. It's a whole Bible principle. So I'm going to start with some, uh, the list of items. Why do we worship Jesus? Number one, it's because Jesus is the creator of everything. Jesus created everything. Colossians 1, 16 to 18, for by him, all things were created 
that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, those are the rankings of angelic beings. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, meaning eternal, and in him all things consist or are held together. The material world is literally held together by the power of his word. There's a whole lot just in those couple of verses I just read. He's the creator of all things. In contrast to the cults who might say Jesus himself was created as an angel. No. We don't worship angels. Hebrews 1. And that right there is enough reason to say he is worthy of our praise. He created everything. He's not just the one who saved us, who died for our sins, but everything, as I like to say, we're swimming in his aquarium. It's his world, and we live in it. Jeremiah one, uh, Jeremiah 10, 11 says, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. Granted, there have been thousands, if not millions of gods throughout world history, but the one you are accountable to is the one that made you. And the other gods are merely manifestations of demonic beings. So one day you will give an account to him. It, I think it's a little comical when somebody says, oh, I don't believe in God. It's like saying, well, oh, I don't have to pay taxes. It's just a fact. God doesn't go away just because you say you don't believe in him. He, he doesn't only exist to people who say he exists. He either does exist or he doesn't. And if he does, then we're accountable to him. The second reason we worship Jesus is because he is literally the, in center, the center of the entire Bible. The entire Bible, not just the New Testament. On the day that Jesus rose from the grave, he appeared to the disciples, and they were confused, just like we get confused. I love Luke 24. You should read all of Luke 24. But in verses 44 to 49, it says, Jesus appeared to them and said, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Now, what books of the Old Testament does that cover? The law, the Psalms, the prophets. What books? All of them. That's right. All 39 Old Testament books. And Jesus himself is saying everything that was written in the law, the Psalms, and the prophets must be fulfilled concerning me, he says. 
Verse 45, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. He said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem. I have done that. I have tarried in Jerusalem. It's my only dad joke today, I think. Tarry in the city of Jerusalem. Wait there until you are endued with power from on high. Those verses I just read you puts it all together. Everything the disciples were trying to figure out about what happened. What do we do next? Who are we? Jesus put it all together. You guys, you're not getting it. Everything that you already know of the Old Testament, it was about me. And everything that is written from God must be fulfilled. There is the inerrancy and the inspiration of God's word. What am I supposed to do? Preach repentance and remission of sins to the entire world. That right there connects the message of the old with the mission of the new. The message of the old and the mission of the new. Did you know that Jesus is predicted, present, or present in every book of the Bible? Go to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. He is there. I'm going to give you some examples of references to Jesus in the Old Testament. What's the first mention of Jesus in the Bible? I've said this before, so this is a test question. If you don't remember this, this is like the easiest one on the quiz right now. The first mention of Jesus in the Bible, Genesis, what? 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And heads up, remember, he's not called Jesus in the Old Testament. He's called Jesus in the New Testament. That was his his, his earthly name. Who created the heavens and the earth? God. But who created the, all things and without him was nothing made that was made? John chapter 1. Class, kids, Jesus. That's right. God in Genesis 1.1 is Elohim. I've mentioned this. It's the plural Hebrew word for God. One is El. Elo is dual, is dual, but the plural is Elohim, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now, how is God three and one? Don't ask me hard questions. But I do know it's the same as a, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become what? One. That's right. The word one is not an absolute one for a one item. It's the word for a compound unity. First 
first prediction of the work of the cross in the Old Testament. Genesis 3.15, I better keep moving or I won't get through my notes. Genesis 3.15, God says to Satan, he, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, your author- his authority, and you shall bruise his heel. When Joshua took the children of Israel into the promised land, he went out to scout out the, tor- the territory. Who did he see as he went out and saw uh, a figure there preparing for battle in Joshua 5? It says, as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Who, did Jesus- who was Joshua seeing? It was Jesus. And Joshua fell on his face and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now the cults say, well, that can't be Jesus because in the New Testament, Jesus said, no man has seen the father at any time or no man has seen God at any time. That's right. No man has seen the father, but we have seen Jesus and he appeared in the Old Testament many times. Who was David speaking of when he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, who did he see? Well, John said in John 12, 41, that he was seeing the Lord Jesus. John the Baptist says of Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of course, he was talking about Jesus, the Lamb of God, because every household, every family had their own Passover lamb. Jesus is the central figure of the entire Bible. If you start to make it about other things, it's confusing. And it really doesn't make any sense. But you can't really understand the New Testament without the Old. And so you should be reading that. A third reason we worship Jesus is because he is the central focus of the work of the Holy Spirit. In different styles of churches around uh, Christianity, there are more Pentecostal churches. Others are more, uh, you know, more word-oriented. To me, that stuff is kind of irrelevant. And I've been around a lot of Pentecostal churches and, you know, different versions of that. What's interesting to me as I study the word is if I'm focused on the work of the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that wants me to get focused on Jesus. In John 16, Jesus said, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speaks Uh, But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will what? Do you remember what it says? He will glorify me, Jesus saying about himself. He will take of what is mine 
and declare it to you. You look at Acts 2, which is the, that main work of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church, that it's Jesus who told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem. It's Jesus who baptized the church with the Holy Spirit. When Peter began to preach the gospel, explaining what happened, he preached Jesus. And when the people said, what do we do in response to what you have said and everything that's happened, what did he tell them? He said, repent and believe in Jesus. Acts 2 is the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus. Romans 8.29, the work of the Spirit is to conform you into the image of Jesus, your character. A fourth reason, and this is important, we corporately worship Jesus is because he is the center of the church. Jesus is the center of the church. I saw that so profoundly in the Jesus movement. It's what attracted young people by the hundreds of thousands into the Jesus, Jesus movement. The attraction of being around Jesus. It wasn't, well, that church has the coolest church service in town. It wasn't, well, they're playing rock music in church. Let's go see what's happening. They were the ones who brought the rock music. It wasn't happening until they came. But the one thing that attracted people, and I have discovered, whenever there is a major real revival, there is a return to a love for the Lord and a love for his word. Everything else, it seems, just gets cleared away. Matthew 18, 20, Jesus said, For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. He, he says, literally, he says, when are you gather, when we're here, he says, I'm there. So when we're singing, we're singing to him. Uh, not long ago, I was talking to a friend of mine I played music with and was there in the early days. He got saved when he was a, a drug dealer for Timothy Leary selling LSD in Laguna Beach. He goes, when we got saved and we started playing music, we, we were singing directly to Jesus. We weren't just singing worship songs about Jesus. He says, we were so aware of his presence with us. And he is still like that today. He pastors a church in Huntington Beach. If Jesus is really not very tangibly the center of what we're doing, do you know it's easy for us to do whatever we want that's exciting? Do you know that? That is chronically what happens in churches. We just start to manufacture whatever we want that's exciting you know why? Because we're bored. I've, I've learned 
that when I get bored in church is because I forgot the main thing. And I just asked the Lord to help me. It's just a chronic, uh, I feel like I'm saying that word a lot today, chronic. It is an occupational hazard. You know, pastors have occupational hazards. And that is to make church the central focus instead of Jesus. It's our job. We have to plan things. What are we doing this coming Sunday? What's the music? Um, You know, is it too loud? Is it too cold in here? Um, I hope everybody shows up. Is the PowerPoint going to work? We're trying to get all the details right, but God forbid we forget the one detail. You know, I feel like if the power's out, we can get an acoustic guitar and have a Bible study and the job will get done. I don't care if nothing works. Just don't let it happen again, Maddie, all right? <laughs> the TV went out. God, God forbid, we, we can't have church without three TVs up here on the, on the stage. And when I pastored in Portland, there were a couple of Sundays where we'd show up and the power was out. I'd say, everybody's moving to the front. We're gonna, I'm going to stand on the floor. My daughter would lead worship. Uh, we're going to have worship and a Bible study. And uh, there's still going to be plenty of power. Say amen. amen. Okay, I'm getting Pentecostal. <laughs> I'm confessing that pastors are often the most guilty of forgetting the main thing. I don't have time to waste on frivolous distractions. I just don't have time. I've spent a lot of years worrying about this program and this person and this activity. I want everything to be properly planned and in place. I love organization, but God forbid we are so well organized that Jesus can't get in the building. And it doesn't matter how well organized everything is. I guarantee you something goes wrong every Sunday morning. There's always some distraction. And I would pray with our worship team before we're coming out. And my, you know, my worship team was always distracted about something. And I would say, look, I don't care what goes on, if the PowerPoint doesn't work, whatever, your job is to lead worship. Whatever's going on, you can get that job done, so get it done. I said it in my most angry voice I could, no. We all want to do a good job in ministry, but sometimes we're so hyper-focused on how our, our good job that we don't get the job done. It really is just about Jesus. Number five, Jesus is the center of our life. Colossians 1, 9 through 11, Paul prayed that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. I love Colossians. Strengthened with his might according to his knowledge. So whatever's going on in your lives, the solution is to make Jesus the center of your life. And I don't care if you're rich or poor, you've had a good upbringing, you come from an abused background, it does not matter because none of that can get in the way of Jesus working in your life. I want you to know that. I sympathize with whatever challenge or obstacle or difficulty you've ever had to face. But here's what I know. It is nothing compared to the power of Jesus. Nothing. So, and nothing can keep you from putting your life in his hands. We are so full of excuses. Well, I tried. I tried that. I thought I was, you're either going to do it or you're not. Tell my kids to go clean their room and they say, well, I'll try. So what's going to happen? Absolutely nothing. Well, my kids are all in their 30s now, but... You choose to put your life in Jesus' hands or you don't. We all know it's a challenge. And that's why he, he just said, deny yourself daily, take up your cross and follow me. But the, the, the fulfilling of it, the following through of it, do you know is not even in your power to do? How many times have you promised God you were going to follow through and you didn't? Hands? Yeah, join the club. What I want you to discover is that even the ability to keep your promise is the Lord's doing. That's Philippians. For God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If you will say yes, the Lord will enable you to do it. And that is a work of the Spirit. For all of our struggles and promises and not keeping God's word and how many times I've said, you know, God, this time I'm really going to do it. God, this time I'm really going to follow through. It amazes me how patient the Lord is with me. It's amazing. And I feel like Peter, whenever I've had to teach that lesson in John 20 about uh, 2021 about the Lord restoring Peter. Peter, do you love me? Just insert your name there. Just says, Terry, do you love me? Yeah, I like you a lot. And the Lord just meets me where I am. I just... I love that lesson. Now, uh, I feel like preachers are so often we're just 
We're exhorting you to try harder every week. Come on, or you should be in church. Come on, are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? We're telling you the basic things. And it becomes like this, this job list that if you would just try harder, then you would find peace and purpose in your life. I don't really have the ability to follow through. And as a preacher, I'm, I'm not supposed to say that to you. And when you discover that you don't have what it takes, that's when you really learn a, a, a main lesson of the Bible, and that is the sufficiency of the grace of God. Grace is supply. It's supply that's un, unmerited. You didn't earn it, nor is it... it, it is it ever ending? It will never end. So you shift out of a performance relationship with God into just a, a trust relationship with God. To start to live by faith instead of trying to promise you're going to do this and I'm going to do this. That will never work. If you can just shift out of a that works relationship into a love relationship, then it'll be based on just trusting the Lord, not performing for the Lord. It'll be about his enabling you rather than you trying to prove that you could follow through. And you've tried the other way, so maybe try this way. And what's amazing is after all of Peter's failures, how much the Lord did through Peter's life, through his ministry. I'm amazed at how much the Lord has done with my life. For all my promises and failures to keep my promises. Jesus is the center of the world, of the Bible of the church, of our lives. So while you're coming to Jesus and then getting distracted with something else and then coming back, in the end, ultimately, the only answer for what you're looking for is to find peace and purpose in life is found in Jesus. Jesus. He's with you when you're not even aware that he's with you. And one day we're going to see him face to face. The New Testament talks about the hope of our calling. The hope of our calling. And that phrase simply means that one day we will see Jesus and we will be like him. We're, we're being transformed, but... The work's not done until we see him. And we of all generations should be more urgent about this than ever. Because the things of the end times are being fulfilled right now. Russia, Iran, China, Israel are the constant topics in the news. 
there is more and more activity of Russia and Iran against Israel. Did you know that America and Iran are in a bit of a secret war right now? You don't hear about it in the news, but America is bombing what they call proxy troops of the Iranians in Syria. We're not getting it in the American news. This thing is escalating quickly. Russia is more involved. These are the events of Ezekiel 38. When we see these things, we need to, to be ready. We are those people. Let's stand together. Let's stand together. And I just pray that I've said something this morning that will realign the wheels in your life. As we close this song, I just want to challenge you, is Jesus the center of your life? His will, his purposes, his enabling, his supply. Because without that, your life is not fruitful in the way that he desires. You just turn away from the other way and things that you might be doing. Repentance means to change your thinking. Change your direction. Turn around and go the other way. That's what it means to repent. And when God is speaking to you, you can decide to change how you're thinking. It's your choice. Nobody has imprisoned you in a, in a life that is unfruitful and unproductive. But the Bible says, when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart.